Hello, everyone, and welcome to Christ Fellowship Online. My name is Jeannie Rodriguez, and I want to thank you so much for joining us. If this is your first time, I want to invite you to pause the broadcast and fill out a connection card at cfmemmy.org connect. This help us connect with you and know how we can best serve you during this season. And now we'll continue in our new series called A World Without God. The Bible says in verse 3, when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large, what's that next word? Everybody say large sword. Everybody say large sword. Yeah. You can grab a seat at all of our campuses. And I want to set things up today by sharing this with you. This Saturday morning, I took a drive down US-1 here in Miami. Now, if you know anything about US-1, you know it is the highway that runs north all the way to the state of Maine and then south all the way to Key West, Florida. And our section of US-1 right here in Miami is always streaming with heavy civilian traffic. But folks, check this out. Because back in October of 1962, US-1 out there was not streaming with just civilian traffic. It was streaming with military traffic. In fact, those folks who lived here at that time tell me that from Miami all the way to US, all the way to Key West, US-1 was a literal convoy of military transport trucks and vehicles, many of them were carrying surface-to-air missiles that were subsequently placed on the beaches along US-1 in the Keys. You say, why? Because at that same time, nuclear weapons all over the world Nuclear weapons concealed in bunkers. Nuclear weapons concealed in silos. Nuclear weapons concealed in submarines all over the world were being readied for launch. You say, what? Why? Well, it's because in October of 1962, the world came to the very brink of an all-out nuclear exchange. I want you to put your history caps on, because for those of us who were alive at that time, we can never forget the speech that President Kennedy, John Kennedy, gave to the nation, because that speech was daunting, to say the least. Picture it, all TV program was suspended. In fact, the announcers came on TV and said, we interrupt this program to bring you a special message from the President of the United States. At that, President Kennedy came on TV and announced something to America, to the world, that seemed unthinkable. And the unthinkable was this. The Soviet Union, now Russia, was installing nuclear missiles, 
missiles tipped with nuclear warheads in Cuba, which meant that nuclear warheads were now only miles from continental United States and only seconds from us in Miami. And if the Soviet Union was not stopped, let me say that again, if the Soviet Union was not stopped, America would be placed at an impossible to defend situation because a nuclear strike could hit us not in minutes, it could hit us in seconds. And so President Kennedy came on national TV and he addressed America like this. Take a look. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. How many of you were alive to remember that? Yeah, I see your hands. Folks, it was like the United States and the Soviet Union had nuclear guns pointed at each other's heads. And the world was wondering, would one of them try to pull the trigger before the other and thus trigger a nuclear exchange? By the way, I'll never forget those days in October because I was in the first grade at Richmond Drive Elementary School in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And every day during that, those days, we went through the nuclear drill. The teacher would say, duck, and we would dive under our desks. I don't know what they thought that was going to do. <laughs> but I'm telling you, nuclear war seemed imminent. And the world was praying to God. God, please stop this. God, please stop this nuclear war or we're going to be annihilated. Well, we're all here. <laughs> so I don't have to tell you, it was stopped. And thank God. Amen? Everybody say, thank God. Yeah, everybody say, thank God. Yeah, because had the Soviet Union launched one missile... It would have triggered what Kennedy said would be a full retaliatory response by the United States upon the Soviet Union. You say, meaning what? Meaning a chain reaction launch that would lead to what's called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. In other words, if one side launches one missile, it assures the annihilation of millions and millions and millions, maybe even billions of people. That's the world we now live in because the nuclear bomb cannot be uninvented. 
Now, let me turn a corner and bring that all over to the Bible, specifically to the book of Revelation. And here's my proposition. With the advent of the nuclear bomb, the world now has the, the capacity of mutual assured destruction, mutual assured annihilation. But folks, more than that, the advent, the invention of this, this large sword, if you will, is setting the stage for what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. Put another way, the invention of the nuclear sword is another piece of the puzzle, if you will, that is leading the way to what Jesus called the Great Tribulation, which will be followed by his return back to the earth and the creation of a whole new earth. That's where the world is headed. Now, you might be saying, Rick, what do you mean by the nuclear bombs piece of the puzzle leading to the Great Tribulation? What do you mean by that? Is all, is all this supposed to scare us? What, what is this? Well, we're going to find out as we go back to the book of Revelation. Let me go ahead and tell you it's not supposed to scare you. Because I see some of you going, wow, what, what is this all about? Not supposed to scare you. So with that in mind, I want to give you three major thoughts as we unpack this text today. How many of you have your listening guides? Wave those in the air at all of our local and global campuses. If you're a guest with us, we like to take notes. This is one you definitely want to take notes on. By the way, I think I'm just going to say this for the rest of the book of Revelation. This is going to come across more like teaching than preaching. So I know it's early, but you need to lean in, you know, put your brain in gear and get ready to think through some of these amazing things that God has for us to consider. So three thoughts. Here they are. Number one, God provides earth with global protection. Let me say that again. God provides the earth with global protection. Now, with that in mind, let's pick it up in verse one. You'll get the idea. The Bible says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. By the way, when Jesus opens that first of the seven seals, that will, that will launch that seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. So this is where it begins, chapter 6, verse 1. Then I heard one of the four, what's the next two words? Living yeah, living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Stop! 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 Is that what he says? No, he says, come. Now, stop there, because you'll remember these living creatures are actually angels. Yeah, specifically, they are what the Bible refers to as seraphim. Anytime you have the I-M ending in Hebrew, it's plural. So you have a seraph. Seraphim is plural. There's four of them. One of them's name is Michael. Michael. And by the way, they are called living creatures because if you were to see one of these angels, you might think you were looking at a huge robot. You might think you were looking at a machine. More on that in the weeks and months to come. For now, what we need to know is these living creatures, listen, this is so important, they are tasked by God to stop anything or anybody that would annihilate the planet. And they've been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, we saw last time, 2 Thessalonians say, they literally hold back anything or anybody who would annihilate 
the human race. Tell you what, hold that thought for a moment. Because back to October of 1962. Because during those 13 days, humanity came right up to the, to the edge of nuclear annihilation. But it was stopped, wasn't it? It was stopped. And listen, immediately after it was stopped, the world started thanking President Kennedy. They started thank thanking Khrushchev, as well they should. Those men had a part in it. But folks, I have no illusions. Behind the, the scenes, in a dimension that we cannot perceive, were these four living creatures. And they were the ones who really stopped humanity's annihilation. That's their task. And they've been doing that. That's why we're still here. Just recently, our president talked North Korea, you know, off the edge of nuclear madness. And a lot of the world came out and thanked our president as well. They should. But having said that, you need to know there is a far more formidable force than the president, than the military, that has been stopping the, the, the annihilation of the human race for millennial after millennial after millennial. They have done that task that God has assigned them. Thank God. Thank God. Everybody say, thank God. Everybody say, thank God. Yeah. And the world should thank God. The world should thank God for his protection. But listen, listen. Rarely does the world ever thank God for anything. For his care, for his presence, for his protection. Rarely do they ever thank him. In fact, what we've been saying in this series so far, kind of the big point, is that more and more, we live in a world that wants to get rid of God. They want God out of the schools. They want God out of the government. They want God out of our minds. They want God inexorably off the planet. They think this world would be better off without God. John Lennon said, imagine. Imagine what? He was basically saying in that song, imagine, imagine a world without God, which he said would be better. No God above us, only sky. Well, listen, the world's going to get their wish in a seven-year period that's coming. Jesus called that seven-year period the great tribulation, and here's what's going to happen when that seven-year period starts. Write this down as big number two. God will abandon his global protection. God will abandon his global protection. Again, listen to verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. That starts the tribulation. Watch what happens. Then I heard one of the four living creatures, that would be one of, that would be Michael probably, say in a voice like thunder, stop! Is that what he says? No, to the contrary, he says come. In other words, God is saying in effect, okay, world, you want a world without me? You got it. I will detask the living creatures. And they will no longer 
stop global disaster, which they've been doing for millennial after millennial. To the contrary, they will command it to come. That word come is in the imperative mode. They will command disaster to come. And come disasters will. In fact, watch what happens when they say come in verse 1. Watch what happens in verse 2. Then I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He has a bow with no arrows because he's going to conquer through peace. And he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Who's that? That's the man the Bible calls the Antichrist. He is called the Antichrist, listen, this is so important, because he will oppose Christ by pretending to be Christ. Let me say that again. He will oppose Christ by pretending to be Christ. But he will be a false Christ. He will be a fake Christ. And yet he will seduce the whole world into believing that he is the Christ, that he is the Mashiach, the Messiah. And he will seduce Israel. He will seduce the world into believing that he is the Prince of Peace, that he is the Messiah, that he's the Savior of the world, that he is the protector of global peace. And he will promise the world what the world really, really wants, and that is global peace. And he will bring it. The Great Tribulation will not begin with war. It will begin with global peace. Peace. But it will be a fake peace from a fake Christ, and it will not last. And here's why. Write this down as A. The world now possesses the large sword. Man now possesses the large sword. Example in point, listen to verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Stop! Nope. What's he say? Come. Come. With that, look at verse 4. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a what? A large sword. Everybody heads up. Because this is graphic language. This is symbolic language. By the way, the word large sword is a translation of two Greek words. The first one is mega. We know what mega means. Mega means mega. (laughs) Means large. The word sword there, makara, makara, literally means an assassin's sword. Makara means a sword that you conceal, that would be concealed, but that could quickly be drawn out to assassinate somebody in the back. By the way, a makara was the kind of sword that Peter drew out in the garden and tried to kill Malchus. Remember that? He had that kind of sword. His was a little one. But the Bible says this is a mega assassin sword that was concealed. It's graphic language. 
And folks, what an image of the nuclear sword. The nuclear, nuclear sword is a mega weapon, huge in size, carrying megaton warheads atop them. And yet they're concealed all over the world, aren't they? Nobody knows where they are. <laughs> they're concealed in bunkers. They're concealed in silos. They're concealed under the water, moving around constantly. They're concealed, and yet they can be drawn in an instant, armed, and assassinate millions and millions of people. What a graphic image. The mega makara, the mega sword. And by the way, whatever this sword is, that the symbolic language is talking about here, it carries the power of mass destruction. Because look what it is capable of in verse 8. Watch this. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades, that is the grave, was following close behind him. They were given power, watch, watch this, over a fourth of the earth, to kill by what? Sword. sword. The word there is rumphia, which means a large sword. Same idea. So whatever this large sword that God is talking about here, this symbolic language, whatever it is, it has the power to kill one-fourth of the world's population. Today, that would be nearly two billion with a B people. Folks, I don't have to tell you, there's only one mega weapon that could kill that many people. And that's the megaton nuclear warhead, nuclear missile. In 1946, after it was invented, Bernard Brody called it the ultimate sword. Wow. The ultimate sword. And here's what one writer says about it. George Brundy Bundy of MIT writes this, listen. He says, a decision to bring one hydrogen bomb on one's own country would be recognized as a catastrophic blunder. Ten bombs on ten cities would be a disaster beyond history. And a hundred bombs on a hundred cities would be unthinkable. But folks, the unthinkable is going to happen. Because write this down as B. The world will go mad. The world will, in other words, the world without God, once God steps back, the world will race towards mutual assured destruction. The great sword will be released. And one-fourth of the world's population is going to die. I was reading an article this week called First Strike You're Out by professors at MIT. Here's what they say. Listen to this. This is so important. If nuclear weapons were like conventional weapons, trimming back the number of them might help. But nuclear weapons are different. Those who imagine that fewer missiles can change the nuclear peril, 
simply do not appreciate the power of one such weapon. And we've got thousands of them. In fact, in a book called Nuclear Seduction, again, scholars from MIT describe what would happen if one, one hydrogen bomb were detonated over the city of Boston. Here's what they say, quote, within a radius of four miles, the city will literally disappear. More than 750,000 will die outright, many of them vaporized. Firestorms will originate in a fireball hotter than the sun and will sweep a radius of, of 20 miles. Within that radius, 2,300,000 will die outright. Another 500,000 will be disabled and in shock. Anyone who looked at the explosion from a distance of 40 miles or less will likely be blinded. Epidemic disease and hunger-crazed animals, hunger-crazed animals, remember that, will end the suffering of more than 25% of their survivors. That's one hydrogen bomb. And the world now has thousands of them, and we cannot uninvent them. And folks, here's the issue. Nuclear release has come close to happening more than we realize, especially as it relates to Israel. When it comes to Israel and those who want to get rid of Israel, nuclear release has come, came close in 1956, came close in 1973, came close again in 1990 and 91. And just so you know, during the coming great tribulation, Israel will be the target of the Antichrist. Israel will have a bull's eye on them, and the Antichrist will be coming after them because they're God's people. Whether you like it or not, God says, those are my people, and God says, that's my land. But Antichrist will go after them, and here's, here's a little FYI for all of us. Israel has nukes, and she's probably the one country that is not afraid to use them if she has to. In fact, Israel calls their nuclear, op her, their nuclear option, this is what they've called it, they call it the Samson option. The Samson option. You say, what do you mean by that? How many of you remember the story of Samson? You remember the Philistines were going to kill Samson? Samson basically said, if I go, put, me, put my hands on the, tiller, the pillars of the temple, and I'm going to bring this whole pagan temple down on everybody. I'm going to bring it down on my enemies. That's Israel's policy. Israel says, we want peace. But if we have to go, we're going to bring the whole pagan temple down on all of our enemies. Now, folks, here's what you need to know about all of that. And I know you're thinking, oh, man, Rick, why are you telling us all of this? You know, <laughs> Sunday morning. Why? I'm going somewhere. Bear with me. It's going to get better. So here's what we need to know. Write this down to see. God is setting the stage for the great tribulation. You say, that doesn't sound good either. Hang with me. Listen to verse 8. I looked. 
And there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the Ramphaya, the Lord's sword. Watch this. And by what? Wild animals of the earth, just like the professors at MIT said would happen. Listen, the wars of the Great Tribulation, here's what you need to know. The wars of the Great Tribulation will be the likes of which the world's never seen before. Nothing like it. Mind you, Jesus said there will always, always be wars, and there will always be rumors of wars. You know, you ever hear these guys, these preachers on TV, you know, there's wars going on. It's the end. No, this has always been wars, and there will be more wars. This war will be different. Why? Because the great sword will be unsheathed and it will be unleashed and two billion people will die. And it will be a war like the world has never known. The great tribulation. But here's what I love about the great tribulation. Here's the good news. Ready? Write this down as D. Christ will return at the end of the great tribulation. People ask me all the time, Rick, do do we know when Christ is going to return? Yeah. I can tell you exactly when he's going to return. He's going to return at the end of the great tribulation. Now, we don't know when the great tribulation is going to start yet. So we don't know right now, nobody knows, not even God, or or not even Jesus knew as the Son of Man, because we don't know what day the Great Tribulation is going to start. But when it starts, seven years later, watch what Jesus says. You want to know when he's going to return? Verse 29 of Matthew, here's what Jesus said. He said, immediately, after what? Yeah, the tribulation of those days. Shall the sun be dark and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from the heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man, what? Coming. Coming in clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That, folks is the second coming of Christ from heaven back to the earth at the end of the Great Tribulation. And the Bible describes that same event in the book of Revelation, the book we're studying right now. Listen to Revelation 19. We'll get there in weeks and months to come. Listen to this, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon him was called faithful and true. Who's that? Jesus. And again, that is Christ coming from heaven back to the earth in Revelation 19. And what is Christ going to do once he gets back to the earth? Go all the way over to Revelation 21, the end of the book. Here's what he's coming back for. Watch this. And I saw a new universe and a new what? Yeah, a new earth for the old earth, for the first earth, I mean, and the first universe in the first earth We're passed away. Folks, I love this book because this book tells us the future sequence of events that will lead up to the return of Christ back to the earth and the establishment of a whole new earth. Now, here's my point. Here's my point. The prophecies of the book of Revelation 
are not designed to scare you. The goal of the prophecies in the book of Revelation, their goal is not to wig you out. To the contrary, write this down as number three. I'm almost through. Hang with me. The goal of Revelation is to instill happiness. Some of you are going, what? (laughs) That's the purpose. Let's go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3. This is where we started a year ago. Remember this? Here's the purpose of the book. Verse 3, chapter 1. What is the very first word? Blessed. Everybody say it. Blessed. Blessed. Say it like you mean it. Yeah, blessed is the one who reads, not wigged out, not freaked out, not scared. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And everybody heads up. Because the word blessed there is a translation of the Greek word makarios. You know what it means? It means happy. Happy. God says people who read this book will be happy. Do you realize the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises happiness to the reader? The only one. And yet it's the most ignored book in the Bible. The most neglected book in the Bible. People don't want to read it. Because they think it's a book about being scared. But it's a book designed to give us happiness. And how does it do that? Write this down as one and two. I'm sorry, as A and B. A, Revelation is a book of prophecy. Like no other book in the Bible or no other book in the world... The book of Revelation is all about prophecy. I mean, from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Revelation chapter 22 and everything in between, this is a book of prophecy. But that raises the question, what is prophecy? I mean, we hear all about prophecy, but what is it? It's simple. Write this down as one and two. This is important. One. A prophecy is a promise. Simply put, that's all it is. A prophecy is a promise from God that something will happen in the future. In other words, God stands back in the past and looks forward in the future, and God basically says this. Here's a prophecy. God stands back here and says, I prophesy, I promise that is going to happen in the future. So God stands back here and foretells history before history happens. He says, I promise that's going to happen. And when God makes promises, prophecies, they come to pass 100% of the time. Dead accurate every time. For example, before Christ came, the first coming of Jesus, hundreds and a thousand years before Christ ever came, God all the way back here stood in, 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 in the past 500,000 years before and said, I promise, I prophesy, my Messiah will come. And then he said, I promise, in various prophecies, I prophesy, I promise when he comes, he'll be born of a virgin. I, I prophesy, I promise he'll be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Where? What? Bethlehem. Where's Bethlehem? That sounds like Homestead. That sounds like Redland. That sounds like... Palmetto Bay, where, where, where is that little town? But it, God promised Bethlehem. 
God promised, he said, when my Messiah comes, he'll be born of the lineage of David and Abraham. He'll be able to trace his lineage back through those people. God said, I prophesy, I promise when he comes, in his death, his hands will be pierced. His feet will be pierced. I I prophesy, this is a thousand years before he ever came. When he comes, his side will be pierced. I prophesy, I promise, as he's dying, they will gamble for his garments. I, I prophesy, I promise, when he comes, he'll be buried in a borrowed tomb, 331 verbal predicted prophecies about the first coming of Christ, every last one of them fulfilled to the letter. That's what prophecy does. And God makes those same promises about the second coming. But here's the point. Write this down as number two. The fulfillment of prophecy generates happiness. Because once we see a prophecy come to pass, God gave a promise, God gave a prophecy. Once it comes to pass, it builds trust, doesn't it? It builds confidence. What do you know? We serve a God who can foretell the future. Mind you, other would-be gods try to do that. And they can't do it. They miss. They make mistakes. God doesn't predict the future. Weathermen try to predict the future. They don't get it right. God doesn't predict anything. God just promises that's going to happen. That's a prophecy. I just promise that's going to happen. And it happens 100% of the time. By the way, if all 331 prophecies about the first coming of Christ came to pass, they did, what should we expect about all the prophecies regarding the second coming of Christ? They're all going to be fulfilled. In fact, write this down as B, and I'm going to close. The prophecies about the second coming are coming together. By that, I mean we are seeing in current events the pieces of the puzzle coming together. In other words, the ultimate prophecy is he's going to come back. To create a whole new world. There's the, there's the puzzle. But in the current events, we're seeing the pieces of the puzzle, aren't we? Coming together. And we know where it's all headed. Pieces are coming together. Current events. Remember when we launched this series? We said piece number one is the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Israel was not a country for nearly two thousand years. And in our lifetime, our lifetime, 1948 and then 1967, Israel became a nation and recaptured the city of Jerusalem. Jesus said, when you look at that first piece of the puzzle, he said, you need to start looking up. Think about last week. We talked about current political climates around the world are setting the stage for the great tribulation. Today, we're talking about the advent of the nuclear weapon. At no point in history could what the Bible says would happen, could it happen like it can now with the advent of the nuclear weapon. And in the weeks to come, as we go through this book, I may not be pointing it out every time, but you're just going to see peace after peace after peace coming together. And where's it all leading? To a new earth. And what will that new earth be like? Jesus said, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, and no more death. See, I love telling people, you're not going to spend eternity in heaven 
floating around like a spirit on a cloud playing a harp. Nobody wants to do that. That's not what heaven's going to be like, by the way. That's a lie Satan loves to sell. But the point is, you're not going to stay in heaven. You're coming back to a new earth. You'll be given a body, but it'll be without the possibility of death and suffering and pain and sorrow and hate and war and all of that. That'll be all passe. And it'll be a lot like this world. There'll be challenges. There'll be business. There will be fun. There will be sports. Just like this. You see, all of this is designed, the book of Revelation 4, if you're a believer, it's designed to give you happiness. Because isn't there something about going, wow, God says, God says something and he promises, and man, we see it coming together, and you're going to see more. So for us, it's designed to generate happiness. But if you're here today and you're not a believer, as you see these pieces come together, it's designed to help you to believe. See, maybe you're here today and, you know, you don't go to church and maybe your first time in church ever or in a long time and, you, you know, you just say, Rick, I just never have really believed it. Listen, you have to believe, don't you, to receive eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, you have to believe it intellectually. But you see, what you need in order to believe is proof. What you need to believe in order to believe anything is evidence. You've got, to see, you've got to have evidence or you can't believe anything. God gives evidence. This is what separates Christianity from all the, the faiths and religions out there. God says, I know you need evidence. I wired your brain that way. You have to have proof. You've got to have, you can't believe anything. All other religions call us to blind faith. You believe it because we said believe it. God says, I know you can't do that. And so God gives us proof. And Revelation is some of the proof. There's much more. But you need evidence. You know, if you were standing on the edge of a cliff and total darkness was below you, and I said, jump, there's something down there that's going to catch you. <laughs> Unless you see something, you're probably not jumping. Your brain won't let you do it. That's the difference. God says, jump, and God says, you can see the net. I'm going to catch you. I'm showing you the evidence. I'm showing you the proof. And this is a part of it. And maybe today you would say, Rick, I believe. I'm intellectually persuaded. Jesus is the Christ. God is true. The Bible's true. But what do I do to receive eternal life? How does that work? Well, once you believe it, it's so uncluttered. God makes it so simple. Not simplistic, but simple. He says this, the Bible says, everyone, that's you, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will receive eternal life. So what do you have to do to receive eternal life? You don't want to become religious. That'll take you away from God. It's personal with God. Always has been, never been religious. It's personal. God says, all you have to do is talk to him. Talk to him and ask him to give you eternal life. And if you'll do that, if you'll ask him and follow him, he will give you everlasting life. Why don't you call on him today? In fact, at all of our campuses, let's bow our heads, close our eyes. If you're here today and you've never received Christ, you would say, Rick, I believe it in my head, but I've never received it in my heart. Why don't you call on him today? 
and invite him into your heart. You might say, Rick, I'm not, I'm not sure what to say. I don't know how to do Listen, let me help you. Let me lead you in a prayer. And you pray this to God, not to me. This is not a, this is not a poem. This is not a scripted prayer. So you pray this from your heart, quietly there in your seat, because God is listening with all of his. Pray this prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for all of the evidence that proves I can believe you, that proves I can trust you. Thank you for not calling me to blind faith, but to a faith that is built on substance and evidence. Heavenly Father, I believe it. I believe it in my mind. And so right now, I open the door to my heart, to my life. And I ask you to come in. I ask you to forgive all of my sins, my past sins, present sins, even the sins I haven't even committed yet. Forgive them all. Wash them away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And give me everlasting life. Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for not giving up on me. And thank you for giving me eternal life. May I spend the rest of my life following you, obeying your word, learning your word, loving you, and being loved by you. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you want to take your next step as a believer, we want to hear about it. Let us know by filling out a connection card at cfmemmy.org slash connect. We want to thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.